Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I'm Strangely. This is the podcast. The friends will be along in a little bit. So, uh, I saw that new Spider-Man movie, and I enjoyed it. Uh, it, I liked seeing the Peter tingle. There, I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist. Now, let us speak of it no more. Uh, I'm really excited about this week's show. I, over the last two weeks, had Jory and then Trevor, the third member of their tour, Cayman, is on the show this week, and Cayman and I talked about filming movies and cinematography and we, we we actually ended up talking about a lot of aspects of movie making that I generally don't talk about with people so it's a lot of fun I hope you enjoy it for now let's move on to our first segment strangely recommends in 200 words or less including these 11 uh wait does this aside count F- fiddlesticks disappearance a map A Meditation on Death and Loss in the High Latitudes by Sheila Nickerson. This elegiac book exists between personal diary and Arctic exploration introduction. Nickerson interweaves simple anecdotes of her own daily life in Alaska with the tales of failed Arctic expeditions of years gone by. The result is a stunning book. Though she occasionally gets out in the weeds recounting her own spiritual journeys, the book nonetheless maintains a strong personal voice. Only 98 words left. I've read numerous books on Arctic expeditions and travel narratives which try to make sense of the hugeness of the world and what drives some of us out into it, but this is one of the best. The reader comes away with a strong sense that Nickerson is writing to try to make sense of personal losses and confusions. She then chose to share the joys and heartaches found in landscapes too large for the human soul to fully grasp. I also really enjoy how she writes about the ancient legends of Alaska with the same authority as the recorded expeditions. So this is my chat with Cayman. I just really hit it off with this guy, and I hope you folks enjoy it a lot. I am absolutely not surprised that Jory loves Cayman, because I love Cayman. So here's me talking to Cayman. sitting here with my friend Cayman Hodges. Cayman is a filmmaker, camera operator, and uh, tour manager from Grass Valley, California. Did I don't I, did know I about that last that one. Right? <laughs> First two, I'll take. Last one, I will not. That's a Trevor thing. That's a that's a Trevor thing. So you're, why are you in Bellingham? How, how is it that I am able to interview you for my podcast? No, Bellingham's a great place. I'm in Bellingham because I am part of a 50-state road trip tour with uh, Trevor Wade and Jory Phillips, um, and I'm shooting the documentary about it. So, I, spoiler alert, Jory is your girlfriend. Oh my God, you've been how friends did I do with that? Trevor yeah. for a while. Yeah. But you're like on tour with friends making a documentary about it, which yes. is one of the cool things I want to talk to you about. So let's, yeah, yeah. let's zero in on that. Like, why... Why are you doing this, other than the fact that you already know these people? Um, about a year ago, I think Trevor's going to have a different um, answer for this, but mm-hmm. about a year ago, um, Trevor was like, hey, I'm doing this 50-state tour, 
and I want you to shoot it so that I have footage and so that there's a documentary and so that I don't get killed. Mm -hmm. uh, Trevor's queer. So surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, so we're going through all 50 states. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going on there. And I think it'll be an interesting experience. And I'm like, well, I don't like commitment. Let's table that until it gets a little bit closer. That That is a big, insane project for anyone to propose. Like, even yeah. if you have proper funding, that's just like, that's a lot of miles. That's a yeah, lot it's of, like, hey, yeah. can you take three months off your life to, to like, go shoot a movie for free? Why would I do that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, two months before mm -hmm. uh, the, the trip actually took off, which was April 1st, mm -hmm. because, of course... Um, Trevor was like, Hey, I'm buying a GoPro. How do I actually shoot this? Let me buy you a cup of coffee and like, we'll talk about this. I was like, you know, you could shoot it with a GoPro, but it's going to look like shit. I think you should go to every, um, every, every location, like go to a local TV station or like put a Facebook post out and like, Hey, does anyone know a videographer? Um, can you come out and get footage? Like if no one can show up, do it on your phone and, and like, we'll mix all this footage into like a comedy special. Uh huh. And then Trevor's like, or you could come. I was like, oh yeah, I could come actually. So then I went home and I was like, Hey, Jory, let's talk about this. Like really think about it as a couple like what if we took three months off and you opened for trevor for the whole thing and immediately she's like yep we're doing it <laughs> i was like oh no i meant like can we talk about this and like yeah she's like no, no no it's happening we just need to figure out how to do, do it so uh -huh. in two months we figured out how to do it and raised a bunch of money and thank you to everyone who donated to our Indiegogo campaign. Oh yeah, I mean, or GoFundMe. Anything like that is such a humbling experience to yeah. have like a community be like, yeah, I believe in you, five dollars. I mean, this this very podcast yeah, is supported real. by Patreon people, and it's just like the fact that anybody wants to even give me like a dollar, dude, for real, like, is amazing. People like she had a friend who who was just like, oh yeah, you're doing that. If you can raise, like, we we figured we needed about five five thousand bucks. Mm -hmm. To, to do it and she had a friend joy had a friend who who was like yeah we're doing it and like if you can raise three three grand i'll get the rest that's awesome and then we had another friend who was just like oh you already have two grand promised here's the three so you can pay your rent because our landlord wouldn't let us out of our lease wouldn't <laughs> let us sublet our place uh quality yeah which um yeah anyway <laughs> um so, but I mean, this is a huge project to be undertaking for essentially no pay. Like, and yet you've done this, which to me indicates that this is kind of your thing. Like you like to film stuff. I do like to film stuff. Yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is like you, you, I've talked to you before, like you like yeah. making movies. You, it's something that you, you've invested a lot of equipment into. Yeah. Uh, so in, in, in essence, you put your money that could have been spent on other things where your mouth is and like you actually have the stuff to do the thing. Right. And like you showed me that short piece you made, like you're making stuff. Yeah. So, so clearly there's a, there's a, I don't want to say compulsion because that makes it sound like you're just like itching to, to shoot stuff. But it seems to me that 
this is something that you're drawn to. So when did that start? Like, why is this the thing that you do? Um, I think I'm really lucky in that I've always had that like goal and direction. Uh-huh. I grew up in the theater, like my mom's a, a set designer and um, I was always into photography and then took a photography class in, in high school and I was like, oh, this really clicks. This makes sense to me. Um, sorry for the ring clicking. It's all right. It clicks. <laughs> um, it clicks, turns out. Um, <laughs> so I've always been like drawn in that direction and always seen like production as kind of a way of life because I literally like spent half my childhood mm-hmm. in the theater watching sets be built and like that stress and that's kind of how my brain works it's like i like that i like the the teamwork that that takes and like this community effort to like put on a thing and i like film because it's a different it's a medium that like brings all these different uh all all all, like all the mediums together it's like there there's color theory there's there's painting there's like storytelling there's music there's sound design and there's there's acting there's performance there's all these things that gets wrapped up into and you you as a single person can't do all of it at once right there's no person can do all of it and if you try to control all of it you get the room right (laughs) or that the film within a film in the uh, Mr. Bean's Holiday movie. I don't know if you've seen that. Right now. I haven't seen that. There, he's he goes to Khan and Willem Dafoe is playing this like totally up his own ass filmmaker character who's named like Kurt Ramsey or something. And so it's like Kurt Ramsey presents a Kurt Ramsey production <laughs> yeah. of a Kurt Ramsey film starring Kurt Ramsey, written by Kurt Ramsey, produced by Kurt Ramsey, directed so by Kurt. And it's like the opening credits are just like shots of him, like sad on escalators. Like, <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, it doesn't, it loses that spark. Yeah. Like that thing you're saying about like having all these different people, part of it, like film is one of the few creative or even productive mediums where someone who is really type a and like getting everything done can actually be an incredible working partner with someone who's incredibly messy and just like throwing totally like paint at the wall. And those two things can actually come together to make incredible work. Yep. Which is why I'm the only film person on this trip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's like, especially being on tour with a couple of of absolutely like whimsical goofballs like Jory and Trevor, like it's just like Riff City all the time with them. Like, and yet you're on day, what, 73 of this tour? 74 now? Yeah. 73? I don't know. And you all still seem to like each other and somewhat be getting along. Yeah. (laughs) No, like there's definitely a shorthand to our bitchiness, but it's like we're we're very united, which is crazy. Well, it's always almost more odd to me when people who are on tour together are not united Mm. because it's like you're all here for the same goal. Like, yeah. don't you all want the same thing? Don't you all want to like travel the world and do a show and whatever for people? Yeah. Like, why is the fact that one of you wants to eat fried chicken out of a bucket, like such a big deal <laughs> right? <laughs> or whatever, you know, like there's just always the things that like drive other people on a tour crazy. Yeah. And it's, yeah. You've done a ton it. of tour- touring. You've done more touring than anyone I've known. Maybe? Yeah. And you know, it's funny. The first 
tour I ever went on was with this like big circus of like 40 people and I just wanted to murder everybody mm-hmm. like I couldn't do it and I, I still have a hard time being on tour with more than like one or two other people hmm. like anything beyond a single vehicle load of people mm-hmm. is completely untenable to me because hmm. it's just like you're off like a turd of hurdles right but it, there is something really wonderful about bringing a community that has formed on the road to a place it's like sure. a town arriving sometimes and like right. that's so cool when that happens it's circuses in town exactly it's something very ancient you yeah know, like the, the idea of like the 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 wandering folk arriving with their pots and pans to sell or they're gonna play music for you or whatever yeah. put on a show so how long have you been working with cameras was it something where you had like a camera when you were a teenager and you made movies um i did the first movie i did um was called double o cluckin uh-huh um it was never finished because we were we were uh, doing it in in sequence, shooting mm-hmm. in sequence. Um, but the opening uh, it was like down a toilet paper tube with um, a little a little chick. Right. Like I didn't have actors, so I was using my chickens. Uh huh. And they they grew up pretty fast during production because you only have about a week or or, right. or so where continuity of the feathering matches, which I really <laughs> cared about. <laughs> So, <laughs> um, that, that opening, you know, James Bond, uh, gun barrel shot was pretty solid. Oh, and then yeah. I got really into making a, a model car, uh, have a jet, which I used, uh, rubbing alcohol to do and almost burn my house down. That's so amazing. That was, that was the first project. And how old were you? I don't know. Uh, 11, somewhere in there. That's so great. I, I met my friend Micah when we were about 11 and he had like a mini DV cam and we were always yeah. making, it was like, I'm going to go play at my friend's house. Like, what are you doing? We're working on a movie. It was like having yeah. a job. It's like, exactly. Oh, I gotta go. But like in a fun way, but it was also like, we were so serious about it. Totally. As like, you know, these 11, 12 year olds, you know, we'd, we'd like film until it got dark and then we'd <laughs> go like watch like schindler's list or something like you know it's like two like 12 it's like time to do some research how did they build this scene and you know being friends with him he he's such a delightful person because you know even when we were 12 it's like most 12 year old boys i feel like are trying to be like oh my gosh like let's this movie has boobs in it like revenge of the nerds or animal Mm. house or whatever and like mike and i were like "Ooh, this one best picture (laughs) We're like watching like, you know, Empire of the Sun or something. Yeah. Like two 12 year old boys be like, the cinematography of this is amazing. And so that's why like, I just, I love hearing stories, especially from people who make film who are about our age. Like, it's like, I feel like the mid to late nineties was when it started to be like, you could get like a VHS camcorder or something and you could start doing yep. stuff. And it's, it's so interesting when you look at, the 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 waves of directors in Hollywood where, you know, the very the very first Hollywood directors were like theater directors and so everything looks like a play and then like, then camp comes the people who grew up watching their movies and sort of on and on and on and then you get the the wave of like, uh, Coppola and Spielberg and all of them who grew up seeing old movies on TV, right? So then they're the first generation that has like the history of cinema that they're drawing on, yeah. And then come the people who grew up watching all of their movies, you know, and that's like 
the Tarantinos or whoever, and now we've got the people who grew up with everything on VHS or DVD or whatever, who've seen yeah. every movie. Yeah. Like we're in that, like Edgar Wright has seen every movie. And can reference every movie. Yeah. It's, well, yeah. <laughs> so you, we've mostly been talking about you sort of in terms of being like a camera operator and like you film yeah. stuff, but on something like this where you're just white knuckling a documentary, you're also the director and the, the DP and the grip and you're just kind of doing everything. Yeah, I, th- I think this is... Which we just said, people can't do. Yeah. <laughs> but, but obviously this is something different, so... Like... No, I, I, I'm i not giving my, my teammates enough credit. They've been super great and, like, picking up lots of slack and being their own, you know, audio techs and, uh-huh. and all that. Um, and, like, mounting cameras. But it is kind of... It's small scale. It's not we're not like rolling in with a crib truck and right. doing a thing. It's like, we'll go to lunch and I'll bring a camera. <laughs> but, but there's such authenticity to that. Yeah. Like because there's not a whole crew, there's not six other people in the room. Like even I myself, like when there's been a camera crew around me trying to capture my like just relaxed life, I have a hard time not being sort of a characterized version of me. But like yes. when you were filming all of us yesterday, you just kind of came in, you had the camera. I was just talking to you. Yeah. And Jory and, and Trevor. And it, it was just, it was like, we were just people there. Yeah. Like in the same way that sometimes you'll film your friends with your cell phone almost like it was kind of like in that liminal space between filming something that's a throwaway on your cell phone and filming something that's like, all right, hang on. Can we, can you walk in the door again? We need coverage. Yeah. <laughs> Like the, whenever you watch like a reality show of like Anthony Bourdain arriving at someone's house, it's like, Hey, is he home? It's like, why are you doing this bit right right now? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, he's home. You flew 2000 miles and brought 18 people with yep. you. He's home. No, set it up. Set it up. Yeah. I, <laughs> that, uh, I don't know. You, you, there's like a, a weird line between, or there's a weird mix of like, you need the story. Um, for it to be digestible yeah, and not just like for a mass audience, but like for our brains to understand that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, you don't want it to be contrived. Right. So I'm, I'm a little like worried that I'm going so far in the other direction mm-hmm. because it, what I want for this thing is, is for it to be just these moments there I don't know, for context. There's, there's like kind of two different projects. One is the comedy special, mm-hmm which is Trevor's piece. Trevor is doing this uh, hour-long show, and it's all in rhyme. And it's the same show every night with you know minor, minor performative differences, right? Um, but for the most part, like the words match. So mm-hmm. what I'm going to try and do is cut up the 40 shows that we've done, the 35 shows, into a single piece where where it's all these different audiences where it's like a 150 seat standing right. ovation in, in their hometown to two people in Cincinnati. Yeah. Like I, bouncing I, back and forth between those. As a fringe performer who's yeah. toured all over the world and has had both of those shows. Yeah. On the same day in the same theater. Yeah. You know, the 150 people standing ovation, like bedlam and the three people, you know, it's, it, it happens to every artist. And I think capturing that variety, I'm, that's one of the things I'm most excited to see in this project. Yeah. So, so that sort of like 
tour slash concert film kind of yeah. thing. That's project A. Yeah. But then these sort of filming these like moments in between is the second project that you're doing. Yeah. So there's, and that, that like my current idea for it is, is just to have, and this is going to wildly change during editing, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But the current idea is just these like vignette moments or like almost memories. So it's like you're, I don't know if it's going to be interesting to watch. I don't know if it's going to be engaging enough to like really keep people's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll, it'll be like what you kind of remember from a tour where it's like, if it's all cut up linearly, it's, you know, it's exploring a artist space in Oakland to, to like listening to a tornado warning like outside of a bar before yeah. a show and then like putting on makeup to get into the show and then like people like, wow, that was great. And then on to just driving and time lapses of driving, and like the conversations over that flowing into exploring Salt Lake. And there's all these like moments and maybe it'll be beautiful. That's what I'm going for. And then maybe we'll have to like reshoot a bunch of stuff in a sound studio where it, like that's, that, that's the idea that I have right now is like, all these pieces where I need to like hit an interview point. Right. I want to do in a car with like two cameras in front of a rear projection screen. So we'll have the oh. road like going past people. Nice. Yeah. From, but you know, it'll be shot so kind of be... studio style. And <laughs> that's, that's brilliant though, because like, yeah. you know, for your, that is something that like, Oh, you reenact the deer the deer accident because <laughs> i of course i wasn't rolling when the deer decided to fucking jump into our car yeah but i was rolling right after uh-huh. so we get the documentary scene of you know the dead deer on the side of the road and like going through a car wash and like prying open the door you should do a for the actual impact you should do like a really really shite uh <laughs> just like a stuffed animal thrown at the yeah. car yeah <laughs> or like jory wearing a deer hat like <laughs> yeah. hitting her head into the side of the car exactly just like weird magical realism yeah shit like that i i i gotta say like a, a lot of times you will see documentaries where the talking head bits or sort of the pre-planned bits don't match the energy of the yeah. in the moment bits because you can't yeah and and yet sometimes they find ways to sort of communicate that feeling yeah like uh i'm a big fan of it might get loud that uh documentary I... where jimmy page mr the edge and jack white get together for two hours and jam with their guitars and right. so jimmy page rolls in with like you know his like whatever fan, amp guitar like his whole thing right and Mr. The Edge arrives like three hours early to set up 8 billion pedals. Yeah. And then Jack White just rolls in like five minutes before. And you can tell that all of them are kind of leaning into a caricature version of themselves. For sure. But the thing is, is the people who made the documentary were into that. It was more of just kind of like this idea, this like manufactured situation. But all the Jack White sequences of him traveling there, there's like a kid dressed up exactly like him who's like Jack White, age nine. <laughs> He's like, it's like his inner child is sitting in the backseat of the car while he's driving to this meeting. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, and and like, I, I think that you can, you could make very straight documentaries that are claiming sort of this authenticity or realism or whatever. But I think the better documentaries that I've seen are the ones that will engage in some of that playfulness and like sort of surreal or, uh, kind of magical realism recreation stuff because memory is such a fractured lens anyway. 
and even what you choose in the edit and how you where you cut on someone's reaction to things or whatever like it's it changes the story and so if in the act of telling the story you're changing the story why not change your presentation of the story in a way that captures the emotion or feeling of the time or the, yeah. the experience yeah which is a lot of like depressing boring shit <laughs> what's that which can be a lot of depressing boring shit yeah and like on a on a long ass tour through the country it's like and there, there's like these moments where it's like i don't know going going back to where what you were just saying is like you're building any any movie is like you should be building what you want the audience to remember when they've left mm-hmm. when they've turned it off or, or gone out the the door it's like you're not really building an experience for the moment you're building a memory for them to have later. Yeah. What's, I mean, that's how the best magicians work. I was just, uh, there's a documentary about Ricky Jay called deceptive practice, the Mm. myths and mentors of Ricky Jay. And then he also talks about this in his book, uh, Matthias Buchinger, the greatest German living that the best magicians aren't the people who are the, who are really good at making the card disappear. Mm. The best magicians are the people who are good at telling you that the card is going to disappear and that it has disappeared. Like the people who leave you with a very clear memory of what happened that you can tell that you can recount the story of the trick to your friends are the best magicians. And they're not necessarily the ones with the highest technical proficiency, but they're the ones who are like, okay, take your card, place your card back into the deck. Your card disappears. Now, you could take the card from the person, put it back in the deck, have it disappear. All that's visual. But when you say it, you're reinforcing the visual mm-hmm. and they're, 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 they're already beginning to build the story of how they're going to tell their friends about it later. Right. It's storytelling. Yeah. I just, I, I'm a, I'm a huge nerd for the idea of storytelling and creating stories and how we craft stories, not just in the traditional sense of like typing a screenplay, but the fact that, a film is a screenplay and then a film is the performances and then a film is the choices made in the edit and even how they key the colors in the edit. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you, Buffy HD re-release, you piece of garbage. Sorry, that's always going to be sore for me. <laughs> uh, so as we're kind of heading towards wrapping this up, I am always very curious to ask the various artists and creative type people who come on the show about the things that influence them. Like if, if they can point to versions of their craft that inspire them or that they think are, you know, superlative examples of their craft, but not necessarily the best, you know, mm-hmm. it might just be something that you personally find engaging or that, you know, sent you on a path. Like, do you mm-hmm. have things like that in the sort of stuff you're trying to make? I think the, the idea of uh, a wonner uh-huh. <laughs> is is kind of one of the things that really got me into the idea of making movies. And they're they're just like this. They can be like a calling card or or like a, a dick waving move, but it, it's like they're just fun. They're theatrical and and they 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 always have like this sense of movement and flow to them because you you have to set the pace of it with the actions and you don't have editing as right. a tool to 
improve it or give you a different perspective. It, you just always have to be flowing through the space. Mm-hmm. And like spatially, they're really interesting. They kind of pop more for me than like, obviously more than, than your like standard cross coverage, like over the shoulder of the shoulder white shot. Right. Um, well, they, they give spaces such a sense of three dimensionality. Yeah. Even something that's having like a lot of like interesting angles and cuts, it's still like these static windows. Yeah, exactly. And then as soon as the camera begins to move through the space, yeah. it uh, it just changes the whole feeling. Like, do you have a favorite one-er? One of my favorites is in uh, The Place Beyond the Pines. I haven't seen that yet. It's yeah. the Ryan Gosling, yeah. uh, like, noir-ish kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the structure of the movie is really interesting, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, like, follows the 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 fathers and then the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in equal measure, which was not really explained in the trailer, which is good, but it it kind of has this like two act or two two part uh-huh. feeling to it, which is cool. Um, but the the opening shot is like Gosling getting ready in in his trailer, and he he like he's like a, a daring, it's like a daredevil, like motorcycle rider, evil Knievel style. Yeah, like yeah. D- just kind of a burnout dude. Mm-hmm like white trash he just fucking like but way too pretty to, yeah 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 i was <laughs> but already like, oh, he's like laughable that's yeah. a laughable concept. he's got a teardrop tattoo but yeah. he's very healthy looking but it starts with him kind of like getting psyched up and then he he gets called out and they just walk through a fair like carnival oh wow. and it's at night and it's just walking through and people are looking at him and it works because they're looking at the camera to see what the fuck is going on because it's a it's a live carnival that they did oh, and so and cool. like it works in the scene because he's famous for uh-huh. the carnival like he's he's you know yeah they he's knew the he guy. is and like on set they were like oh you know ryan gosling's gone for the day like you missed him and people were like crowding around it and then like they dissipate a little bit uh-huh. and then like they'd push the crowd back and be like no he's gone he's gone you missed it like, take two you go out the door Everyone like, oh shit, he's here again, like taking pictures yeah. and like do the shot. <laughs> and then so he, cool. he he walks through the whole carnival, which is kind of ridiculous, uh, because why wouldn't he just be standing in the back yeah. of where he's going and like goes in through the tent into this this like the those like motorcycle balls where uh-huh, it's like uh-huh. it's a ball cage where you like ride the motorcycle in, yeah. in like in all directions. And there's like two other dudes on bikes that are waiting and he gets on the third one and then it pans away from him really briefly and the actual rider hops on it's pretty seamless and then they all get on and like start doing the whole like all in all directions like motorcycle i'm waving my hands in front of my face in the sphere um (laughs) that's gold podcasting it's beautiful it's 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 like it's so good but that's sort of and it's all handheld which Mm -hmm. is the kind of the key to that is like it, that's why it's really great because it's usually on a steady cam it's very smooth like waters always have that like you know smooth handoff with a movie or like yeah like steady cam thing and like but this one like it, the dp who i'm blanking on the name of insert it bing so who's this guy dp of place beyond the pines if you know it shout it shout it out yeah, there's, there's definitely like one or two people who a couple people are this. like dude sean sean bobbit why won't you remember sean bobbit what the fuck um 
Yeah. So the the reason I'm kind of like, there's so many, so many amazing winners. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that one stands out because there's there's a really good like workshop put on by Ari um, mm-hmm. that Sean Bobbitt teaches, and it's it's just like the basics of handheld uh, photography, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend to anyone who, who is like working on stuff, uh, working on, on with cameras, but he, he goes through uh, like how to protect your back and how to not be just like, just wear knee pads. Yeah. You're going to look dumb, but it's worth it because, you know, <laughs> he's, he's like, how, how old is he by now? Yeah. And he still has knees. Yeah. And he's just like, dude, I wish that I'd started wearing knee pads. Like, 20 years before I did because now I regret it. They're just shredded from like kneeling. And he kind of shows you how to, how to match footsteps uh-huh. with, with someone like take a deep breath because you know, when you're, when you're starting a long take, uh-huh. especially on a long winter, yeah. like you're, you flood your body with oxygen or else your muscles will just start to shake. And, right. and just like you will lose control of your muscles when you're trying to like match people's breath and like, do a thing and like walk through the walk through the the set like multiple times and like kind of give yourself spatial awareness and like count out your your blocking steps uh-huh. for a shot it's like and you just like walk through the space and like feel the walls which gives you a really like solid sense of of where you are in space and then you can be looking through a viewfinder and not bump into a couch or like trip on something right like so it's 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 an hour long like airy workshop where he's just like here's how you do it and it's amazing and check it out if you're into being a dp gonna have to check that out i i mean i love behind the scenes stuff on movies of any kind yeah there used to be a show called movie magic on discovery channel back when they were things other than reality shows where they would take a thematic type of special effect from a film Mm -hmm. and do an entire episode about it so they had one that was all about dinosaurs and movies. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it was to come, it came out with Jurassic Park. Right. But they go all the way back to like stop motion with like, uh, like claymation and like, yeah, like yeah. King Kong and stuff like that, all yeah. the way up through to the present day where they're using like cutting edge computer technology. Right. And I just, I love stuff like that. Yeah. Just like diving into some aspect of a thing that I feel like I'm very well versed in, yet not in that specific of a field. Yeah. What's well, that's one of those things like that you said like a uh, a winner can be like a dick waving thing. I'm just I constantly thinking of Inaratu with uh, Birdman mm-hmm. and the Revenant. There's a, there's a couple of winners in the Revenant that feel really immersive. Yeah, and like you're just there. Like there's that the whole attack on the camp at the beginning yep. where they lose the pelts and like that's just it's it's so like pulse pounding because. The camera keeps whipping back and forth, and you're like, "Oh, now they're over there, and what's going on?" Yeah, and that can be so immersive. Like Birdman, it was distracting. There were scenes that were it was beautiful, like where they're working out a scene and they're like doing some improv and they're mm. doing that, like actors theater workshop stuff where they're like, "Oh, let's try it like this," and what if I actually hit you? Oh yeah, let's try that. You know, like that kind of thing. That's super immersive, and you feel like you're there with them. But but then when it just like it's doing like strange pan fades to get to like. A different location mm-hmm. like miles away like that kind of stuff i just i don't like hmm. but that 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 immersion like the, just the way you're describing that scene of moving through the fairground like it sounds like you've watched that hundreds of times but i doubt you've watched it no i've of watched times. it 
like three times, four yeah. times. <laughs> it just like it, it it's immersive. Like yeah. it, you remember it like something lived as opposed to something viewed. Yeah. Well, uh, we are way over time, but thank you so much for chatting with me. This was so You need great. a longer podcast. Because I'm, I'm only now just getting going. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, we could keep going. I just, I, I, I try to keep these relatively short and please come back on the podcast. I would love to have you on again, especially, uh, definitely come back once you've start once you're deep into the edit or maybe you have a rough cut of these two documentaries. Yeah, for real. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll screen them. We could even do like a Skype. You could send me a screener and then I, we could Skype and chat about it. Cause yeah, I would. Cool. Love to follow up on this project. Thank you so much, Cayman. Yes, you're welcome. Here's a thought. I found myself wondering of late what constitutes an appropriate use of imagination and at what point such imaginings cross a boundary. This peculiar musing is proving more vexing to explain than usual, so I shall endeavor to define several terms as I see them in the hopes that my dilemma begins to clarify itself. Upon rereading that last sentence, it strikes me that I may have spent altogether too much time reading the labyrinthine prose of Ricky Jay over the past few weeks. Do not despair, good listeners, for when I have finished reacquainting myself with that most perspicacious of gentlemen, I shall share with you all the fruits of my labor. Good lord, I'm doing a parenthetical only four sentences in. Now, back to business. Cultural appropriation, the research novel, and speculative fiction are the three terms which I'm going to endeavor to define as quickly as possible so that I can get to the central dilemma which has preoccupied my mind of late. Cultural appropriation. The practice of one culture taking artistic and or cultural artifacts from another and using them for their own purposes. This is usually associated with historical narratives of imperialism and domination, with the stronger culture taking as it will from the weaker. See, British explorers carting off Egyptian relics from the Valley of the Kings. There is the less tangible taking of the musical styles, say, of an oppressed group and reinterpreting them for the oppressors, see, jazz or certain aspects of blackface minstrelsy. Whether well-intentioned or not, these physical items or intangible musical styles are still the cultural artifacts of another culture. Where things get dicey is when you start to try to parse what is a harmless repurposing of a generally good idea and what is theft without credit. Sometimes something arises in more than one culture. If you don't believe me, just look up the history of dreadlocks, tattoos, or pancakes. That last one is a rabbit hole. Personally, I think it's okay for white people to eat tortillas, but not for white people to wear a sombrero and a fake mustache on Cinco de Mayo and shout about getting wasted in pseudo-Spanish. Is there gray area in between? Of course there is, but use your judgment. I don't claim to be anything of an authority on this particular subject. I'm just trying to explain what I mean by cultural appropriation in the context of this piece. The Research Novel If you enjoy historical fiction, or actually just plain fiction now that I think about it, then you've probably read a few of these. Some authors just can't get enough of research. They enjoy steeping themselves in the literature of a given place or era and then setting their story in said era or place, incorporating as much detail as possible. Though doubtless enjoyable for the author in question and perhaps informative to the reader, this process can end up hampering the final product. For a prime example of this phenomenon, one need look no further than Sarah Groon's Water for Elephants. But more on that 
book later. For now, let us define the research novel as one where the author's primary experience of the topics at hand has come from research as opposed to actual life experience. Speculative fiction. Oh boy, hang on. I said water for elephants and my blood pressure went up. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna go drink, a, I'm gonna go have a drink and then I'll come back. Bing. Okay, speculative fiction. This is any work of fiction wherein an author invents something which does not exist, be it a world, a magical power, a race of fairies, a space colony, etc., etc., etc. Speculative fiction also includes things which never existed in the past, such as ancient armies of undead monks from Venezuela or a race of sentient lizard people from 1 billion BC. Ditto for things which might one day exist, like the spaceships Enterprise, Serenity, Rosinante, Moira, or Nostalgia for Infinity. If you recognize all five of those, we should probably be best friends. Speculative fiction is all about imagining things that were, are, or could be. Which brings me back to my central question. Now that I've defined those terms, my ability to ask the question is somewhat increased. So let me phrase it again. When does an author's attempt to create a piece of art cross the lines between speculative fiction, research novel, and cultural appropriation? I first started ruminating on this concept when I read Water for Elephants. I'm going to just level with you right now. I hate that book. I would argue it is the worst book I have ever read voluntarily, and most of my loathing is based in the above question. In her afterward, Groon proudly recounts that she had never seen a circus before deciding to write the novel. Her inspiration came from a 2003 Chicago Tribune article. That, in and of itself, is not a bad thing, it's just the inciting incident. Speaking of such articles, I really want to know what National Geographic or similar publication article on Hadrian's Wall was read by Neil Gaiman, George R. R. Martin, and Garth Nix. It must have been a real banger. So Gruen read an article and her interest was piqued. She goes on to recount her five-month journey. Five months? Five? That's one tour for me! Like, I okay, fine, five, five, five. Clearly, she now knows everything. <clears throat> her five-month journey to visit a circus museum, meet elephant handlers, and interview fans and employees of circuses to hear their stories and then presumably put them into the book. The novel she produced is so desperate to let you know she did her homework that the characters are constantly interrupting normal human conversations to explain bits of circus lore to one another. That is why I would firmly brand this thing with the label of research novel. She obviously did the research. So why does this enrage me so? Because I have actually been in, toured with, performed with, and traveled alongside a number of circuses. Granted, not the big ringling style elephants and tigers kind, but circuses nonetheless, with tents and clowns and horses and shady backlot shenanigans. So here's where cultural appropriation comes into play. Before we go any further, I am in no way conflating my feelings of someone appropriating circus culture with, say, Japanese culture or Mexican culture. I do, however, feel that there is something to be gained by examining this particular instance and feeling. In fact, I would be willing to bet a sizable amount that anyone could think of a book, film, or other work that they encountered that purported to share something about their experience from an author who had not lived it. Which is 
how I feel about Grun's novel. She is clearly fascinated by the squalor and darkness she feels is inherent in the world of a traveling circus, especially as a majority of the book is set during the Depression era. But the thing is, she's written something she has not lived. They say, write what you know, but then how does one arrive at writing speculative fiction? To the best of my knowledge, Neil Gaiman has never met Odin, J.K. Rowling has never attended a wizard school, and James S.A. Corey has never been to space. Before you write me letters, yes, I know James S.A. Corey is the sobriquet of a brace of authors. And yes, I did just pause recording this to go look up how to pronounce sobriquet, because I'm that kind of dork. But still. I doubt one would be able to find a reasonable person who would contend that these authors are lacking in qualifications to write about such things. An interesting aside, Christopher Hitchens did write a thundering takedown of the Harry Potter series for its rose-tinted presentation of English boarding schools, an institution rife with draconian punishments, sexual misconduct, and punctilious legalistic conformity. But my point still stands. Speculative fiction seems to be alright, provided the author is still injecting a modicum of their own lived experience into the narrative. Grun herself includes passages that do feel as though they are her own lived experience. The framing story of the novel, for instance, wherein the hero of the piece is an aging man in a retirement home, it rings true. It feels as though Grun has been close to a loved one who slowly lost functions and bodily autonomy and longed for the physical prowess of youth which makes the other sections of the book, full of evil clowns and monomaniacal ringmasters, so profoundly bad. They do not ring true. And the thing is, there is a perfect juxtaposition for Grun's nonsense available, one that happens to feature a traveling show during the Depression, and which examines concepts like nostalgia with deep perception. Daniel Knopf's Carnival is one of my favorite pieces of art ever. Despite the fact that Knopf has never traveled with a carnival, lived through the depression, or possessed godlike powers of supernatural healing. Seriously, just go watch that show if you haven't already. Point is, I don't mind Knopf's show because somehow he still manages to make the people participating in the whole thing feel real, lived in, and like honest portrayals of someone who could have existed. So once again, I come back to the central question of the gray area surrounding cultural appropriation, speculative fiction, and research novels, and writing what you know. I don't have a clear-cut answer here, or even a particular point I'm trying to make. This is just a phenomenon that I first noticed while reading that book. I can only begin to imagine how it must feel for a person of color to read the scribblings of a white writer, say, purporting to portray their experience. Then again, maybe I'm wrong for feeling uncomfortable about all of this, and perhaps Dangerous Minds is the greatest film ever made, and To Kill a Mockingbird fixed racism forever. I need more coffee. Hokey Fright. Have you heard about Accordion Crimes by Annie Prue? Prulks? Prooks? Prue? I think it's Prue. I suppose I could Google it, but then again, that would defeat the purpose of this humorous aside. I hated this book. I want to lay it at, that out on the table before proceeding, though this segment is intended to showcase works of value that I think need a second look, or perhaps new interpretations of lesser works which elevate them. Sometimes, sometimes we've just got to talk about the less enjoyable bits of art, and since I've already dunked on one book in this week's episode, I figured let's make it a twofer. This is not a bad book per se. Prue is an excellent writer. Her ability to conjure a room, a scent, and emotion is first rate. 
I'm well aware that she won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction with her second novel, The Shipping News, and is also highly regarded for writing Brokeback Mountain, which I have also read. A Pulitzer is a pretty heavy weight to carry into the writing of one's third book. Any accolade would be, much less the highest one in a given profession. As long as this preamble tarries in Concession City, which I seem to be factotum of, I should note that a lot of my feelings about this book are personal. Almost as soon as one picks up and begins to learn that most wondrous of instruments, the accordion, this book looms large. The title is amusing enough for even the most casual observer to draw hilarious connections, and for a non-musician, the content seems somewhat relevant, I am sure. But Prue seems to have forgotten something key to music, the pleasure that often comes from it. Every time a character evaluates the story's central accordion, they do so with the gruff and workmanlike appraisal of a carpenter looking at a hammer. There is never any appreciation for craftsmanship, never joy in the making of sounds, just a cursed instrument destined to ruin lives forever. It's depressing. I don't need everything to be all puppies and rainbows, but for Pete's sake, let's at least try to feel less than hopeless. I guess I'm taking it a bit personally as well. One cannot help but come away from this book with a feeling that Prue thinks that playing an accordion leads to naught but sadness and ruin. In fact, that theme runs so deeply through the book that the only people the accordion makes happy are those who encounter its bits when the thing is finally destroyed by an idiot. Though Prue occasionally writes lovely passages about the pleasures an audience derives from an accordion player's talent, the artists themselves are always sad people whose lives get worse when they encounter the instrument. It's a book full of paralysis, spider bites, and abusive drunks, not to mention a complete disregard for the differences between diatonic, chromatic, bisonoric, and unisonoric. I just can't help but be personally affronted. And maybe that's the intent. I can't help but wonder if perhaps I would have enjoyed the twisting narrative of this novel if it centered on, say, a violin or a cajon. Now there's an instrument that brings the owner nothing but misery. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week, Silver Jack, from the Folk Songs of North America by Alan Lomax. I love this whole folk song because it kind of encapsulates a kind of character that would exist in some of these professions, you know, 150, 200 years ago. These, you know, loggers, lumbermen, buffalo skinners, hunters, people who were hard bitten, people who were often just looking for an excuse to explode violently. There's a there's a passage in Neil Gaiman's American Gods where Shadow, the hero, ends up having a fist fight with a character named Mad Sweeney. And at one point, Shadow asks Mad Sweeney, why are we even fighting? And Mad Sweeney says, for the sheer unholy fucking joy of it. I know a few people like that. People who just want to hit something. And they're just looking for an excuse. And I can't help but be charmed by the fact that the excuse for the fight in this song is that someone says something critical of religion and 
someone else takes umbrage at that because their mother was a member of said religion. Anyway, I just really get a kick out of this song. I hope you folks enjoy it too. This is Silver Jack.
Well, that's it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I'd like to thank all of my amazing supporters on Patreon for helping this continue to exist. You folks are literally keeping the lights on here. I have to pay an electrical bill. It's a small one, but I it's nice to be able to turn the lights on in here. So thank you for that. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced at Sonic Suitcase Studios in Fairly Fine Fairhaven, Washington. Sonic Suitcase Studios is located in the Morgan Block Building, part of the People's Land Trust. If you'd like to get in touch with me about things you've heard on the podcast or things you would like to hear on the podcast, send me a letter at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, number 21. And Make sure you put the name strangely on there so none of my studio mates end up reading my mail. I hope you all have a great week, and I'll see you next week when I have a chat with another one of the artists here in the building named Mary Jo Martini. So stick around, or come back next week. Same internet time, same accordion channel. I've got to come up with a better sign-off for this. This actually happened to my uncle. Mm-hmm. who plays jazz uh, jazz guitar and, and other music, um, usually jazz. Um, he had his car broken into, um, and they stole almost everything, mm-hmm. which really sucked. They stole, like, two guitars, an amp, and, uh, you know, a bunch of, like, music and whatever else valuable that they could find. They didn't steal the banjo. <laughs> And they had to, since the banjo was on top of everything else, uh-huh. take the banjo out and then put it back in his car. <laughs> That's the fucked amazing. up part is, and the funny part is, the banjo was worth more than everything else that he had in the car combined. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Take that, crackheads. <laughs> Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.